Welcome to episode 8 of the Philosopher Science Podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, Patrick and I are interviewing Bruno Blais, a research officer at the National Research Council of Canada and assistant professor at Polytechnique Montreal. Bruno previously completed his PhD degree in chemical engineering at the École Polytechnique of Montreal. Hi Bruno, could you please introduce yourself and talk to us about your current research subjects? So, my name is Bruno. I've been a researcher in the field we call computational fluid dynamics for about uh, seven years now. And uh, now I work in uh, continuum modeling of uh, additive manufacturing processes and uh, casting processes or anything related to advanced manufacturing or industry 4.0. Okay, and what was your PhD topic about? My PhD topic was about the modeling of solid-liquid mixing. So there's this uh, issue in chemical engineering when you are mixing a powder and uh, and a liquid, and there's a very large need for predictive tools that are quantitative that can allow you to say, well, how are my particles distributed? Are, how is my blending going on? Is it going? How much time is it going to take? And will my blending occur or no? So I, I worked on developing an open source tool that would allow us to do prediction uh, of these type of flows. What kind of software or program language are you using in your research? You said you developed an open source uh, project in your PhD and your current research. What are you using as well? Uh, right. I mean... When you do continuum modeling like us, it's mostly finite element or finite volume-based analysis. And this always entails some programming paradigm. You need to have a software, I mean, you need to develop a software that's going to be fast. You need to take into account any HPC, high-performance computing related issues such as uh, parallelization, memory issues, distribution on a cluster, and etc. So it kind of limits you to the, in terms of what languages you can use. Most of the stuff I've been working on has been mostly in C++, and the parallel aspect is taken care of via MPI, or sometimes we take into account uh, hybrid parallelization paradigms, such as using MPI and OpenMP in an hybrid computing architecture. So overall, most of what I do on a day-to-day basis, the high-performance computing stuff, is in C++. Uh, the I would say the... Simulation handling or the post-processing and whatnot, that part is mostly in Python for convenience, obviously. Uh, during my thesis, I've worked on uh, two frameworks. One is OpenFoam, which is a well-established CFD framework. And the other one is Lights. Lights is uh, an extension of LAMPS. That sounds to be, everything starts to be complicated now. But uh, LAMPS is uh, an MD code molecular dynamics so it's very good at handling numerous particles and lagrangian particle tracking uh, and lights is the extension of that which is also open source but it allows to consider a granular flow so geometries a rotating mesh motion cad uh, e transfer things which are not typical for an md simulation but which are very important when you consider granular flow so I've really worked extensively during my thesis on the coupling of open foam and lights and also on the fundamentals of lights. Okay. Okay. Which kind of MPI were you using open MPI or some Intel MPI or do you try to use an open version there too? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, we try to, at least where I work at right now at NRC, we try to maintain support of MPI CH and open MPI. Because you have to keep in mind that they're both slightly different in that OpenMPI tries to adapt to your environment mostly at runtime when you start your process, whereas MPI-CH is mostly something you would configure at 
when you build MPICH. So it's two paradigm, but to be honest, I've never had any issue using uh, OpenMPI or whatnot. To me, both are pretty equivalent in terms of functionality. Yeah, and about compilers, do you support new compiler clan compiler or what about <laughs> this interesting feature when we are talking about open source projects uh, as always the i guess the issue is to try and support as many compilers as you can but i guess when you when you talk about c++ you want to support gcc maybe clang clang is slightly harder to support sometimes in our applications but you also want to support icc and the reason that you want to support intel compilers is Mostly that most of the clusters I've been able to work with are all using Intel architecture. And as such, they're the only compilers that can extract like the maximum in terms of uh, vector instruction or in terms of high, really high performance computing. And uh, I mean, that part is not open source, but the Intel VTune tools, uh, the, the software tooling that they give you for HPC that, they, that you can buy for HPC, is very, very nice when you want to optimize your software. It's a, it's a pretty nice software package. Okay. And what about Microsoft compilers? Because I think it's a quite big issue that most yeah, simulation tools are designed for Linux and not really for Microsoft Visual Studio compiler. That, that's a very good question. Uh, to be honest, we did, at NRC, I, I've never worked in HPC or even modeling using Windows before, but at NRC, we develop software which is actually contracted or shared under Windows. Uh, when we do so, the approach we've taken is to use msys2 and to really create a Linux environment under Windows. Then we use GCC 7.6. Then we can use Open uh, OpenMPI if we need. Well... There's a Windows version of MPI, MPI is mostly like an extension of MPICH, but everything we do under Windows, even the GUI is going to be Qt, so everything is under the same Linux-based tool. Uh, I've never had any experience of, let's say, HPC carried out using the Microsoft compilers. I don't know if it's efficient or, or no, but uh, I would presume that You know, if you look at the top 500, I don't think there's a window machine there anymore. So it's pretty legitimate to go the GCC way, I guess. Have you heard of the Windows subsystem for Linux? I have. I've been able to try it uh, slightly. I think it's a, it's a, I'd say a step in the right direction. I, for many people, even when you're just uh, beginning to do like scientific computing or whatnot, all you would like to have access to is, let's say, a simple Linux distribution or a bash terminal. I mean, many people carry out their work using msys2 or sigwin and just need a bash emulator. So I think it's a step in the right direction, but I'm slightly afraid sometimes that it might end up hurting the, the ecosystem itself because if you can replace the selling point of having a Linux OS by let's say, just providing the user with a terminal in their Windows PC, then, you know, maybe there will be less Linux desktop. You will just develop in your local terminal and then you will SSH your cluster. And that part, you know, even if you're under Windows or Linux, SSHing to a cluster is it's not that different, I would say. For your simulation, you also use some pre-made tools sometimes. What kind of... Uh, you spoke of lights, of... Um Uh, open foam but for the meshing of those models what are you using 
Yeah, so in a way, when you talk about finite element simulations or finite volume or computational fluid dynamics in general, you generally split the process into three elements, right? Like pre-processing, the simulation itself, and the post-processing. Obviously, even though we developed our own software, we don't develop our own measures and we don't develop our own post-processors. Why? Well, Obviously, those are very different areas of expertise. I mean, I have absolutely no knowledge. I mean, I have some basic knowledge about meshing, but, you know, it's a whole field that is very, very, I mean, it's very research intensive. So for meshing, we use uh, a variety of tools. We use commercial tools to handle CADs and whatnot. But we also use Gmesh a lot, which is a very nice uh, mesher. It's also very easy to script, which is something you don't think about, but you really don't want to go into a situation where you generate a mesh. And if you want to play on it or tinker with it, you need to go through your process pipeline all over again. So that's something we've had a lot of success with. And on the post-processing side, uh, we use a lot of software that is called Paraview, which is a very nice uh, visualization software made by Kitware. And when you think of it, actually, we use a lot of things that come from Kitware. Our, all of our build systems are based around CMake, which is a very nice uh, way, let's say, to generalize make files. I mean, it's a simple way to say it, but it's a very nice building tools. Uh, so, I mean, say, Sparkled all along our simulation process or simulation uh, endeavors, you'll find like open source tools along the way. Okay, and I think as your data format, you're using VTK to store your simulations, or how do you do this? Uh, we use either the GMesh format or the VTK format. We also use a previous format that was uh, it's called the Insight format. It's Insight Gold. Uh, it's open. We can open it in Paraview, so it's it's all the same anyway. Previously, you spoke about Python in this process. Where do you use Python for? Pre-processing, post-processing. Everywhere. Python, everywhere. No, but uh, when you think about it, most of the stuff you that are time-consuming when you do simulation are not exactly related to the design of the simulation tool. Once you have your simulation engine running, your code is developed, I mean, you're going to do variation upon it. But in the end, if your structure is flexible enough, you're going to spend half your time scripting around it and the other half developing the software itself. So... You know, when you do science, you need to do uh, publication quality graphics. That's for that I use Matplotlib. Uh, you need to do some simple ma- man- mathematical manipulation, linear regression, nonlinear regression, filtering of data, FFTs. That that I that all can be done in Python. And right now we're branching slightly into data analytics, and also Python has a very nice Panda module for that. So I guess Python is the tool of choice for that because it allows you to do all the same things that you need to do in terms of post-processing under a single umbrella. You know, I've been able to replace Bash, replace Nuplot, replace MATLAB, all of that using simply Python. You said you have a lot of tools that are floss in the whole your whole pipeline, but is there a point in where you decided to put an emphasis on floss or uh, as, as a tooling for your research, or let's say during your PhD? Well, during my PhD, yes, because I had this feeling that if you work your whole PhD using a commercial tool, when you leave your PhD, you have nothing really to show in terms of you. I mean, I don't know, maybe what I said was too blunt, but what I mean is like, 
if you're using a commercial tool throughout your entire PhD, all you can show are the results, but you cannot really show the process behind what occurred. You cannot show really the code you've coded. And maybe you don't have the same understanding of the numerics that are underlying to what you're doing in terms of a numerical resolution. So, but on the opposite, you know, if you, the opposite would be to say, well, you can code everything from scratch. But if you want to code from scratch, then th this this is what people used to do, let's say, 20, 25 years ago. But things have changed now. If you want to be competitive in terms of numerical simulation, you need your software to be parallel. You need to, your software to have good pre-processing, good post-processing. And these things are not going to help you graduate sooner. So I, I felt that going open source was kind of the best of both worlds. I could get rid of the pre-post-processing things, which I was not very good at. I could get rid of the part of a slight part of software engineering, which was not really my my field per se, and uh, I could focus on the science. But still, I could, if I needed to, I could delve into the code. And I always had this fear with commercial software that if you if you hit the wall, if you're not able to go forward, like to say you you hit a very strong technical bottleneck. Then you're just going to have to like email the software provider and say, well, I cannot simulate that. Can you help me? And then you're just like, and that's pretty much it. So this has been my constant fear. And it's, it's also a fear we have at NRC. And this is why we keep on developing software tools, because there's always going to be a time where you're going to need to do something which is much more complex or you need your initial bound condition to be very weird or your boundary condition, your, your physical properties, or your, you need to add something to your finite element formulation, change your integration rule, change a slight detail. But in the commercial product, most likely you're not going to be able to do that. Okay, you were speaking about open source software at NSC. Yeah. Where can I access the software? Is it yeah, publicly okay. available? Is no. it like GitHub or which licenses do they use? Because I think it's very interesting to see how we can distribute open source software and which license we use for it. That's, a, I would say, a, not an issue we have at NRC. I would not say that. But that's something that is, uh, I would say, it's different when you work in a governmental context. NRC is a federal institute. So... In a way, um, most of our software is licensed, or at least we use a, a license model or something. So sometimes we do modifications to open source software, which will be redistributed in the, the context of the, let's say, GPL license or whatnot. But the software we produce is not uh, in itself uh, LGPL or GPL. And that's because of constraints which are not in the controls of the programmer or of the scientist. It's really, I mean, it comes from, I would say, uh, many, many... Uh, floors above i would say is there any push to change that or is it a state of things that's going to last for a long time i mean i cannot say for nrc right because i work there so i don't want to take any position regarding that but i think we can look at the example of some u.s national lab laboratories so for instance if you look at lights which is based on lamps lamps is actually a molecular dynamics Uh, code that comes from Sandia National Lab. So actually in the US, there is this uh, will, I would say, to go forward an open source uh, governmental research product. If you look at the uh, Chirilinos, it's also a very nice sparse uh, linear solver library and even bigger than that. And that's fully open source. There's PETC, which is also a very, very nice, uh, uh, let's say, linear solver, iterative solver library, which is also open source. Uh, I mean, it's hard to count them. The U.S. National Laboratories have released a very large number of open source tools. So 
I mean, I don't think, uh, I don't think there is anything. I mean, it's just a matter, I guess, of public opinion and, uh, maybe there needs, there will be eventually a change of mentality. But NRC is not alone in licensing software. If you look at Fraunhofer in Germany, they also license software. If you look at the CSIRO in Australia, they also license software from my understanding, at least. So it's really, uh, I would say the world maybe is half and half in terms of some people, they do release to open source, some they do not. And uh, I just hope the mentality will change, but I think that's going to be maybe a slow process. Would you consider yourself more a pragmatist or an idealist toward the open source philosophy? Okay, that's going to sound weird, but I would say a bit of both. Uh, I would say the ideologist aspect for me would be that publicly funded research in academia, for instance, should be heavily oriented or geared toward the production of open source software because it's a very nice way to support your local community and your local industry. People don't realize this, but if, let's say, uh, the author of this or that uh, open source library lives nearby you and you can, you know, you can network with him or you can invite him and, you know, like a I would say share your issues or research problems that can, that can really help uh, in terms of local industry growth. So I think the, my ideological aspect would be, I mean, my ideologist part uh, would be more in terms of academia should promote uh, the development of open source software. And in academia, at least there should be more and more open source software that are released. It's a good way to share knowledge And, you know, writing a paper is writing a paper, but writing a paper and sharing the code, sharing the test cases, sharing everything linked to it really has a much higher impact, at least in the maybe not in the short, short term, but in the mid to long term. That can really change a lot, I think. So that part is uh, obviously something I would like to see change in general, because you see many research groups, they keep their their code closed and you know, you get simulation results, but you never really get to see how it actually goes goes on behind the scenes. On the other end, and that's something we we all have to realize, that if you work uh, in engineering problematics, uh, engineering issues, most companies do not want to invest in open source software, or at least they want to ke- keep their trade secrets secret. And, you know, it's normal because for them... Uh, a software is a competitive hedge. If they can simulate something that their competitors cannot, then obviously they will not share that with everyone. And you know, it's, it's, it's the market. That's how things go. So even though all of us would like more software to be, to become open source, it, it can become tremendously hard to fund open source software. For instance, when I worked on the Lights framework, what the, the company that uh, releases Lights, DCS computing used to do it. And I think they still do the same thing. I, I would presume they do the same thing right now is that the, the new development that were made for a company or tailored to a company, uh, let's say problems would remain closed, not closed source, but they would, re- they would be released to the public a year or two after to allow the company to keep its competitive edge. So that was a very good, I think, uh, idea. It was a good compromise. But that's the thing. As long as companies and universities will not go towards more, fun, I mean, better funding of open source tools, it's going to be harder to uh, keep on developing such tools. 
During your PhD, were you an active member of uh, the Floss community? And right now you develop a little bit in the um, some open source tools. Uh, do you contribute? Do you send? You say you contribute some patches. Uh, how do you communicate with them? Uh, how close are you? Uh, during my PhD, I would use many like forums linked to CFD. There was one of those very nice CFD online. Whenever I could post or answer questions, I would always. I try to be as active as I can right now on computational stack overflow, computational science overflow, which is the computational science pendant of stack overflow. And also on stack overflow and uh, academia overflow also, which I, I find the three of them very interesting. Whenever we can contribute to a scientific project, Uh, we try to let's say you we find a bug or let's say we release an alternative builds an alternate alternate build system to a, a software we will release it and for that the best way really is to go towards right now people i mean uh, i think right now the best way to do that is really when with platforms such as github gitlab which really allow you to fork a code, make a patch to it, submit your changes, make a merge request and whatnot. And I feel that's really the way to go. So right now, that's, this is how we proceed. And this is how I've proceeded all my life, to be honest. What is your vision about Floss and its importance for the openness of science? So I think Floss in its current state is growing well. I think the new fields are faster at adapting it and integrating it within their own research activities. If you look for it, say, at data analytics let's say R or <clears throat> R or pandas, or if you look at uh, machine learning with SciPy, uh, if you look at uh, deep learning, such as TensorFlow, PyTorch, you know, all, all companies are putting forward these tools, which are all open source. They're all available in the community. So I think really the computer science and all everything related to AI has been amazing in terms of uh, outreach and really contributing to floss. Uh, I think it, it, and you know, even in, in my field, in terms of compute, uh, continuum modeling, you have amazing platforms which are open source. Deal2 is a very, Deal2 is a very nice platform. It's a finite element modeling platform. There's Phoenix, which is also finite element modeling, open foam, SU2. So I think it's growing. I just, <clears throat> I just feel that one of the things that would really help Floss right now is if funding authorities recognize more that You will have a better outreach and a better, better impact if you have, uh, if you release your research as floss. So I really think that's something that needs to be taken into account in the coming years that, you know, if you release a couple of papers with your work, that's okay. But if you release what you wor your work on as an open source software, it can have a much greater impact on the community and a much greater scientific impact. So I, I really feel like. How would I say people working the science and the new students, the new PhD students, they're very sensitive to floss issues. I just think that maybe in terms of funding and the agencies, uh, maybe the mentality needs to change in the midterm, I would say, or that might take a slower time, but uh, a longer time, I mean, but still, I feel this is the next step. And you can compare it, let's say, to now some government agency that fund research, they will mandate that your uh, article be available after a year or six months or even instantaneously on your personal website or that people can access it so i feel if you say that for papers you know if you say make the data open make the paper open then make the code open and it's just the logical evolution of where things are going at so you think that floss allows you to be a, a better scientist 
Floss allows you to be a better scientist, but Floss allows you also to be a scientist with a better outreach. And that's that's an overstatement maybe, but Floss allows you to be a better human being in terms of most people will struggle, and maybe you don't realize it, but many people will struggle recoding what you've coded, or maybe they will find your article slightly opaque and harder to read or whatnot. And if you make what you've done available, you're going to save someone somewhere tons of hours and you're going to help create super interesting science which is not going to happen if you keep everything you do to yourself it's a bit like not writing a paper if you discover something and you don't write a paper then it's just lost i feel that especially in academia with phds being three to four year and being in limited in a limited time frame if you write good code and that code is not shared it's going to go to to dust eventually Okay, could you explain to us in one sentence what is the most important feature of Floss which your research benefits from? Is free. I mean, it's a. I, it's, what I mean is that Floss is free, so Floss can be deployed very rapidly on a very large amount of systems, and this is really what we need when we do HPC. If I can learn the code, I can deploy it on my workstation. That's great. If it's Floss, I can deploy it on my workstation, on a cluster here, on a cluster in Dorval, whatever, wherever I want. And that changes everything in for us. You can scale much more easily. Yeah, you can scale much more easily. Actually, you can scale without spending more. You spend, you, in, you know, Floss is not free in terms of... Uh, investment because you invest time to learn your tools but the outcome is that it scales much better you don't need to spend more to do more once you've learned it's good okay uh, we'll play devil's advocate here uh, do you think that using floss can have negative impact on your research ah no i that's that argument is is outdated i find many people will tell you this right i'm afraid of being scooped like what's going to happen you know if i publish my code even before i publish my paper someone's going to scoop me up and publish what i do before or uh, what if i publish my code and my test cases after my paper is out and i had the logical extension i wanted to do paper two but what's what if somebody picks it up and and you know write paper two i mean i've never seen that happen i've never heard of anyone you know where that happens uh Maybe in more, I like, would say, data-driven science where it's based on experiments. Maybe, or maybe in more competitive fields than mine. But, you know, in my field, I mean... You see more benefits from sharing than... Yeah, obviously, yeah. I see more benefits from sharing, but if sharing is done in a mutual way, it's kind of bad when you're the only... When you're sharing and you see people, let's say, pulling your GitHub or whatever, but you see that people don't contribute back. You know... That's that's sometimes the thing that might discourage people, you know. That's why we try at least to contribute back every time we can because otherwise you the tools that you like, you, they're not going to be evolving if you don't at least contribute back with the modifications you've made. But, you know, this is going to change with time, I guess. So it needs to flow both ways. Yeah, because otherwise you're doing free work for other people. I mean, it needs to flow both ways, but it's never going to flow both way if you Uh, don't give the example and start the flow in one direction at least. Do you think there's anything that you absolutely cannot achieve using Floss? That's a very good question. Um, I don't think so. I mean, some maybe very, very specific things, but I don't think they can be achieved with commercial software either. 
they can be mostly achieved, I guess, with research software that is locked somewhere on someone's computers or someone's GitHub. Uh, but I don't think so. Give it enough time. Yeah, that's always the learning investment. Give it enough time. But I think in some cases you maybe are forced to use non-floss software because your project partner or your yeah industry partner do not want to have a non-word document, for example, or something. Yeah, technology transfer becomes very hard sometimes with floss. I would say that's the biggest flaw when you do floss uh, development is that You know, most companies, they have Windows, laptop, or workstations. Uh, they work using commercial software because when they work using commercial software, they have access to support. They have access to, I would say, even just installation guidelines. Or So, yeah, it's it's the, the issue. I mean, I, I don't know if that have ever occurred to you guys, but have you ever had to share a LaTeX document with a commercial partner? That's never going to happen. I mean, people are expecting a Word document. It's like, they won't even say, then send me the document. They'll say, can you send me the Word file? You know? So if you send them a tech code, they're going to be like, what is that? So, yeah, I mean, it, it's very hard. Uh You know, it's hard sharing information, it's hard sharing uh, slides, it's hard sharing text, but it's even harder to share codes. Because, uh, I mean, if you work using a commercial software, say console, then you can produce a simulation, save your simulation, send it to the person, and, you know, they have a running simulation. Most open source software, most floss software in terms of numerical simulation do not have a GUI. They do not have such extensive save and checkpointing features. So yeah, obviously it's it, it's a long time coming. Uh, I find it slightly, and maybe that's an issue because of low fundings, you know, but if, uh, if there was more money dedicated to open source software, then maybe there could be GUIs made for them or make them more user-friendly, port them to Windows, or it's, you know, it's much easier to run Linux-based software on Windows nowadays, so... Maybe more resources dedicated to that could have a better outreach. Okay. And what would be your wildest dream regarding Floss? I will say my wildest dream in terms of uh, computational fluid dynamics. Okay. That's like very limited. I have much wilder dream, but maybe I will not share them. Uh, my wildest dream in terms of CFD is that every paper published using CFD shares the code, which is publicly available online, and that all the test cases which are used to generate results, at least the input deck for though I mean, I don't care about the data, I just want the input deck, are available publicly so that everyone everywhere that wishes to reproduce the result can reproduce the exact result that they want if they want to dedicate the computing power to reproducing that result. That is my wildest dream. But I think a big problem here is versioning, because maybe if you have the input file and you use a newer version, you cannot reproduce the experiment or? Well, yeah, but I mean, you could just, I, I mean, I would not put uh, the weight of this burden on the people releasing the software. You can just say, okay, well, this paper was made with this GitHub snapshot. Uh, you know, you put the hash of your, your commit And you say, and this is the input deck that was used. And, you know, people can say, okay, well, when he did these, when he made, he produced these results at this moment of his life, it was made using this code and that's it. And that's all, you know, there's no need to, I would say, uh, give out more to the public. Even that's a very good, uh, I would say, benefit. 
What is your favorite text processing tool? Uh, Microsoft Word, LibreOffice, LaTeX, Markdown, Emacs Org Mode, uh, Magnetic Needles and Butterflies? Uh, uh, definitely the butterflies. No, but uh, I guess it depends on who you're writing to and with whom you're working. And I find that's uh, the issue, I guess. If I have to write a document that is below a page... I guess I will most likely spring up a Word or LibreOffice Libre uh, writer document and just write it up. It's going to be slightly faster, at least for me. If I'm writing an article or anything technical with equations, maybe a end in notes for students, uh, an exam, uh, homeworks, uh, an article, obviously, or report, all of that I will try to do it in LaTeX if I can, uh, because... In my field, we have many equations to write and the typesetting for LaTeX equation is much better and is much friendlier to use than what you could do with Word. Uh, so that goes for documents. And maybe there's also the things you don't, you've not mentioned, but uh, there's also how we share information in public, you know, how we communicate it. Do we, how we use slides, for instance. So, you know, there's always this debate between, let's say, PowerPoint, LibreOffice, Impress, I think, and, uh, and Beamer, you know, which is the LaTeX uh, package. Yeah. Uh, for this, I still use PowerPoint, you know, to be honest. It's, I find that I really like LaTeX and everything linked to it, but I find that when you're going to produce a visual support for something you're going to be presenting visually, you know, it's it's hard to when you write a text document. It's very good to forget about the you know the formatting. But when you're gonna present something that is you know everything intrinsically linked to the formatting, it's bad to forget forget about the formatting. So that's why in my case, I I still use PowerPoint for that. Okay, is there anything else you'd like to share with us? No, I don't think so. I I know. Maybe one thing is, uh, let's say, an outreach message in a way, is that if you're a new scientist and you're starting your PhD or if you're, you know, a postdoc or studying a master's degree or even just a bachelor, uh, whenever you're going to be encountering projects, people will sometimes suggest you a tool chain. And I would advise you to take, into, take the time to reconsider that tool chain and see if you can integrate a single element of flaws in it. You know, you're never going to change people's mentality dramatically by just like saying, okay, well, tomorrow I'm altering 100% of the tool chain. But if you can show by examples, by introducing some piece of software, some libraries along the way, and you can show that they're as good and sometimes better than what can be commercially available, then I think that's the best demonstration of, uh, you know, what Floss can do. I think it's really a good idea to do stuff with Floss, demonstrate its capacity, and that's the best way to show to people that it's actually as good as anything that can be produced. Thank you, Renaud, for your time and this interview. If any of our listeners wants to reach you, how would you like them to contact you? Well, I think you'll, you will have put my email address close to the podcast link, I would presume so. Uh, and I can always be reached, uh, you know, via my email address or, you know, LinkedIn or ResearchGate or Google Scholar or whatnot. So, I mean, there are many ways to reach me and I'm always, you know, willing to discuss floss and in general computational fluid dynamics and whatnot. I mean, those are fields which I've always been passionate about, so... I'm always open to questions or etc. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That is mine.
this will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview. You can reach me on Twitter at DLPK. And you can reach me at underscore DBrass or both of us at Philosopher Science. Also, we are on iTunes and Google Play Music. You can help us by recommending the show to your friends and colleagues. Our website is located at philosopherscience.github.io where you can find more of our contact information and the link of our GitHub page where you can submit subject ideas for a future episode. Also, we have a small blog post for each episode where we provide more details about our guest and the software and some references. We release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month. You can get our MP3 and OGG RSS feeds on our website. For the second episode of our computer simulation series, we will have an interview with Christoph Gozen from the open source meshing software GMesh. We hope you enjoyed the show and that we will see you all in our next episode. Bye. Bye.